Good morning. You find it helpful to have that uh, bit of Galatians open in front of you. Um, so if you haven't opened it already, I just invite you to grab a Bible nearby and turn to Galatians chapter 2 on page 1168. At least that's what it is in my Bible. <coughs> How about I pray as we uh, look at God's Word together today. Heavenly Father, we want to ask that as we uh, hear your word spoken and read it today and have it explained, uh, you would, by your spirit, be powerfully at work among us to change our lives, to help us to trust in Jesus more and to help us live for him more. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Uh, we've been doing a series on the book of Galatians. So we're uh, several, gla- uh, several, several uh, sermons into that. We're up to chapter 2, as you just heard read to us. Um, I want to start off just transporting us back. It is, uh, the year is 1865. It's a Sunday morning. We're in Virginia, Richmond, uh, gathered at St. Paul's Episcopal Church. Uh, I've got a picture of that, actually. I don't know what year it is, but there's St. Paul's Episcopal Church. Looks 19th century to me, so let's say it's the right year. It's 1865. Many of the residents have uh, gathered for church that morning and it comes to the time in the service for the Lord's Supper. Now, if you've been to a traditional Anglican church, you'll know that it doesn't look like this. Um, basically, what you can expect is you walk in and there's all, there's all pews. Um, if it's 19th century, it's probably got like booths, which is a horrible thing anyway, um, where you know, people are shut off from each other. Don't worry about that. Um, but at the front, you'll have like a communion rail. And when you do the Lord's Supper, what you do is you come to the front and you kneel in front of the rail and the person um, serving the Lord's Supper gives you the bread and the wine and you take it there and then after you've done that and heard the words and so on, you go back to your seat. So it comes time in the service for the Lord's Supper to happen. On this particular occasion, from the back of the room, a black man gets up, walks to the front and kneels at the communion altar and everybody freezes not knowing what to do, including the clergy, as I understand it. You see, you need to understand 1865 is the year the Civil War ended in America. Um, General Robert E. Lee had surrendered in April. The rest of the Confederate forces had surrendered by June. Um, And Virginia is in the Old South. These are the people who are fighting for slavery. Uh, Issues of racial segregation and slavery were right at the front of what this war's about. And here we are in the Old South, just after the war ends, And a black man comes to the communion rail and kneels and everybody doesn't know how to respond. So he knelt there and nobody moved. Then suddenly somebody did get up. Men walked to the front of the rail and knelt next to the guy. It was actually Robert E. Lee, the defeated general that was so important to Confederate forces. He knelt down next to the man and they received the Lord's Supper next to each other and the service continued as normal. It's a pretty controversial story, actually, if you were American. If you're not American, you probably don't care. You see, Americans have a lot invested in characters like Robert E. Lee and what they were like and, and, and this kind of thing. It has a lot to do with their identity. Um, and so people have interpreted it in different ways. A lot of people have understood Robert E. Lee's actions as expressing the harmony and unity that comes between all people in Jesus. That's the most obvious interpretation of his actions, isn't it? He, he got up, he, he knelt next to the, uh, the uh, black man because in Jesus... All people are one, and we're equal, equal before God, one people. Others have a very different interpretation of Lee's actions, and here's where you see like, what people's biases are. Um, some people say, oh, no, no, he just acted as if the guy didn't even exist. 
He, just, he, he was basically demonstrating, hey, this guy can do that. It's, it's, it's just about you, you do it next to him. It makes no difference. Just pretend he doesn't exist. It's all about how you interpret what he did. I don't know what Robert E. Lee's actions, what his attitude was in that day. I know what he did. I know what his attitude should have been. But it brings us into a really important question that I want us to focus on today. What does my relationship with God have to do with other people? Here's the problem. And it doesn't sound like a problem, but it is a problem. See, I believe in justification by faith alone. I think it is an uh, a idea, a teaching that is right at the centre of what Christianity is about. What do I mean by justification by faith alone? Well, justification is the idea of what happens at the judgment, at the last day, when God judges every person who's ever lived. Justification is where God, the judge, announces a person justified, in the right with the court forever, and therefore able to be welcomed into his kingdom forever. The opposite sentence he could give is that this person is condemned. They don't deserve to be in God's kingdom, and so they're condemned. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 16, and it emphasises this, um, this belief, justification by faith. By faith in Jesus, people are declared right before God on Judgment Day, uh, 2.16. Um, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I hope you know that the only hope you have of being declared right with God and entering his kingdom is faith in Jesus who died for your sins. I hope you know that. I hope you trust him because that guarantees our right standing before God forever and nothing else does. Nothing else does because we don't deserve to be declared in the right with God because we're not in the right with God by our own actions. We disobey God, we harm other people and we don't deserve to be part of his kingdom. The greatest news in the world, I can trust in Christ and know with assurance I'll be part of his kingdom. Now, that is the best news in the world, I think. It's also a problem. It's a problem for our question. Have a think about it. What sort, of, um, what, what, what sort of answer does it imply, what I've just said, to the answer to our question? What does my relationship with God have to do with other people? Doesn't it? It seems to imply nothing. It's got nothing to do with other people. It, it sounds like it's just a vertical relationship. You diagram it something like this. There's me. I ha- have this, this vertical trajectory. I trust in Jesus. Through Jesus, I have a right relationship with God. It's just one-to-one relationship between me and God. And so I have my personal relationship with God. And if you trust in Jesus, you have your personal relationship with God. And those things don't have anything to do with each other. And so you come to church and you can just ignore each other on this view because church has nothing to do with, with each other. It's just got to do with helping me trust in Jesus more. That's it. If you only understand one thing about Christianity, I want you to understand that by trusting in Jesus, you're in the right with God forever. But I want you also to understand that if you reduce Christianity to just this kind of vertical relationship with God, you've actually misrepresented what Christianity is in a massive, massive way, just undermined it in a massive way. See, today's passage started with Cephas, I think it might be Cephas in Greek, I'm not sure. Uh, Thanks for bringing that up, Luke. Uh, (laughs) um, The Apostle uh, Peter is confronted by the Apostle Paul. Why? Because he's undermining the message of Christianity. It's a big confrontation scene. Have a look at verse 11. When, I'm just going to call him Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He got up in his face about it, in public, uh, Paul in front of Peter, in front of everybody. 
Why? Because Peter stood condemned, presumably in some sense condemned by God for his actions. This is a big deal. Verse 13, what's he doing? The other Jews joined Peter in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Peter knows better. What he's doing is in contradiction to what Peter knows is true. He acts in contradiction to that, and others follow him in his hypocrisy. But worst of all, verse 14. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel... He's not acting in accordance with the gospel. His actions are undermining what the message of Jesus is all about. What on earth is he doing? Is he undermining people's personal faith in Jesus? No, here's what he was doing. Peter stopped having lunch with people who weren't Jews. That's about it. He stopped eating with people, with Christians, who weren't Jewish. And that undermines the gospel. See, Paul doesn't say to him, Peter, that's fine. You know, it's just about your personal faith with Jesus and other people don't matter. So the Jewish Christians can go over there, do their thing, and the non-Jewish Christians can go over here, do their thing, and just all of you just trust in Jesus separately, and that's okay. He says the opposite. He says, your relationship to each other needs to be in such a way that doesn't undermine the gospel. You know how justification by faith changes how we relate to each other, and you aren't living it out. Our question, what does my relationship with God have to do with other people? Everything. First of all, it establishes a new relationship with God and that has a particular kind of way it outworks in the way that Christians relate to each other as well. That's, that's what we're going to be looking at today. The passage is going to teach us about a relationship with God through Jesus and also how it spells out uh, with regard to other people. Now, a few uh, weeks ago, we, uh, we started the book of Galatians and Paul talks about the importance of this thing called the gospel. So if you turn back to over a page to chapter 1, verse 8, um, and Paul puts right up in our face how important this gospel thing is. It's very important to get the gospel right. Why? Because chapter 1, verse 8, because even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. It's, it's very harsh, very direct. He says, if people change the gospel, then God will condemn them. And now he's saying to Peter, you stand condemned for your actions that are out of step with the gospel. You're undermining it with your actions. So we looked at what this gospel is. It's pretty important by the sound of it to get the thing right. And so we looked a couple of weeks ago. What is the gospel? Well, first of all, the gospel is a message. It's a set of words. It's, it's like content that you communicate to other people, a message you tell other people. What's it about? Well, it's a message about a new era, a new stage in God's plan for the world. Our first reading today was Isaiah 52. And Isaiah was a prophet, and he's looking forward to this gospel era coming about. He's announcing, he's saying, look forward to this great thing God's going to do when salvation comes to the world. Listen to what he says, looking forward to this gospel era. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news, who bring the gospel, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. There's a coming day where God will reign, and there'll be salvation available to all. Listen, your watchmen, lift up your voices. When the Lord returns to Zion, they'll see it with their eyes. Burst into song together, you ruins of Jerusalem, because the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed, his, redeemed Jerusalem, and it's not just for the Jews. Verse 10, the Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. The gospel is about a time in history that was coming, when God would bring about a new era of salvation where all people could come into relationship with God. When Jesus turns up, he announces that time has come. It's brought about by Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus is the long-awaited one who brings the gospel era, the one who brings salvation to all who trust in him. Now, 
Galatians is a letter that's written to confront basically false teachers who are undermining this message in, in, in particular ways. They haven't understood what it means for Jesus to bring this new era, this new relationship with God, and they're undermining it. And the, the relationship between Jewish people and Gentile people has, has a lot to do with it. Um, in order to understand, kind of get inside what we're talking about today, um, I need to explain to you some of the background of um, the very important place that the people of Israel, the Jews, uh, have in God's plan. You see, the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, basically, it's more than that, um, God established the nation of Israel as his special people. He said, you're my special people, you, my peculiar people, if you like, is what one word they use, um, and through you, I'm going to introduce myself to the whole world. Through, the whole, through you, the whole world will be blessed, and through them, uh, the way will be prepared for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Um, part of what... Of, um, God demonstrating what he's, he's like was he giving Israel this thing called the law. Now, when you hear the word law brought up in the Bible, it's often talking very broadly about the first five books of the Bible. We've got a picture of the Ten Commandments. That's kind of at the middle of it. But the first five books of the Bible in particular, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, there's lots of laws, in, particularly in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy kind of recaps a bunch of laws and, and, and applies them. Um, there's lots of different kinds of laws, this law that was given to Israel. All of them were supposed to show the world what God is like, but in different ways. So there's some laws that are very obviously kind of moral standards, right? Ten Commandments come to mind. Don't steal. <laughs> Don't kill. That's like, it's a moral thing. And why are you supposed to do that, Israel? Well, because you need to live in a way that fits with God's character. You need to reflect what God's like. So don't kill, don't steal, and, and, and so on. There's, there's a morality that reflects who God is, and you need to live that way too. But then there's some other weird laws, basically. Um, there's all these very, very strange laws that have to do with foods that are called clean and foods that are unclean and how you can come in co contact with things that are called unclean and they make you ceremonially unclean. And they're all very symbolic. The symbolism is supposed to teach you what God's like. Basically, God is holy. He is so completely pure, you can't even imagine it. And so before the watching world, Israel would live out this system of there's clean food and we do ceremonially cleansing and we make sure we're ceremonially clean in God's presence because we need to show the world that God is so holy they can't even imagine it. And we need to show the world that people can't just leisurely walk into God's presence. They need to be made holy to get into the presence of a holy God and to receive eternal life. It kind of dramatized that sinners can't just come into God's presence. And it should have made Israel really, really humble. Because here's the thing. If every time you eat something and, or, or you come into contact with something, you're in danger of being ceremonially unclean, it's hard to imagine yourself as intrinsically holy in some way. You constantly have to battle to be good enough to be in God's presence, to be symbolically clean. They're loud now. I'm going to get you to be loud in a minute. I'll tell you when we come to that. So the gospel announces this change of era. This Old Testament law, here's the key thing. The Old Testament law symbolized this purity in God's presence. When Jesus comes, he brings about the real deal that those symbols pointed towards. So food makes you clean or unclean. No, no, it's pointing forward to the day where Jesus comes and claims all of creation as his holy territory and claims all people as belonging to him rightly. And all who trust in Jesus, who trust in his death for them on the cross, become holy in God's sight, taking their sin away. Now, if you're really holy in God's sight, whether a food's clean or unclean is neither here nor there. 
It, 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 it doesn't apply anymore. The symbolism just points forward to this enormous, amazing thing that Jesus has brought about. Now, the Apostle Peter knew this. If you read Acts 11, uh, it talks about how um, God teaches Peter that since the coming of Jesus, all foods are clean in God's sight. That means two things. It means, first of all, that now Jewish people and Gentile people could trust in Jesus and be made holy in God's sight forever. Issues of clean, unclean, doesn't matter anymore. You're made holy, you're made entirely clean in God's sight through Jesus. But the second thing that means is Jewish and Gentile people can hang out with each other. Because if I'm a dirty Gentile, ceremonially speaking, and I've been made clean in Jesus, and you've been made clean in Jesus, then we can hang out and it doesn't make any difference. We're holy in God's sight. And so Jesus brings about reconciliation between Jew and Gentile and all people so that they're one family in Jesus. It's supposed to express the unity between all people. Here's the problem that they faced, just, just kind of socially. Over time the symbolic laws that the Jews had became kind of the outward badges of everything it meant to be Jewish. Everything it meant to be Jewish for some people. Um, Think about it this way. Uh, If you're a person who observes food laws faithfully, people see that. And so they see you observing the food laws and they go, that guy's a faithful Jew. That guy follows God's law. Presumably he follows all of God's law. And so you go, well, they're faithful Jews. They follow the food laws. They're, They're children of Abraham. They're the people who inherit God's promises. The opposite also holds, though. If you're a person who doesn't observe the food laws, then people assume, well, you don't take God seriously, you don't follow the food laws, you probably disobey all the other laws too. And so non-Jew and sinner come to mean pretty much the same thing. You're not a Jew? Well, you're a sinner because you don't listen to God, you don't obey God. And so non-Jew, sinner, Jew, faithful, righteous, that kind of thing. We, and and so you can see how it's kind of a, a badge of my status before God that I do these food laws. And people held this very, very deeply. Have a look at the language pop up in our passage there, um, and you'll see this kind of equation um, in verse 15. Um, he says, um, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles... <laughs> You see how it just, it's just the natural way of speaking about it. He's, he's using their way of talking about the issue. Verse 17. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, because we're hanging out with Gentiles now, and so we're among the sinners, and people see us doing that and not keeping food laws, and therefore we're counted as among the sinners. Can you appreciate there's a lot of social pressure for a Jewish Christian at this time? On the one hand, all the Jews in your neighbourhood are going, if you hang out with Gentiles, you have become a sinner before God. And that's terrible. On the other hand, if they refuse to live out the difference Jesus makes, it would seem like they don't actually believe in him at all. And that, that's kind of the, um, what, what's going on in the passage. So if you have that in the back of your head, have a look at chapter 2, verse 11, you read it again, and the, the, the pressure of this situation um, comes, comes to life, I think. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, Paul opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, these are Jewish Christians, he used to eat with the Gentiles because it doesn't matter anymore. We're united in Jesus. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, these people who thought the Jewish badges of belonging still applied. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, which does away with these food laws and brings us together in Jesus, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not a Jew. See, he stopped doing the food laws perfectly. How is it then 
that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. Basically saying, Peter, you're pressuring Gentile Christians to become Jews in order to become Christians, and that's not what it's about. Jesus has come and made people holy through faith. Teach them to trust in Jesus and don't undermine it by giving them requirements that God doesn't require of his people anymore. Now the new era has come. Now, um, because I want to look at this passage very seriously, um, I need to define something fairly precisely for you. Uh, If you have a look at verse 16, you'll see this phrase, works of the law. Um, I want to tell you this because there's an academic argument out there about this, and academic arguments tend to find their way into normal people conversations eventually. So I want you to know what this is about now, so that when you have that conversation, you know. Um, The argument is basically, this phrase, works of the law, it sounds like it is just talking about things like Jewish food laws and circumcision, like kind of these marks of what it means to be a Jewish person, very specifically. At the other extreme, people say, no, no, works of the law just means any kind of trying to please God in order to obey obey him enough to be saved. Um, What's going on is both views are kind of half true. Um, Works of the law in Galatians focuses on particular aspects of the law. The things that come to the surface are issues like circumcision, food laws. But it has implications for the entire law, even though that isn't mostly what we're talking about in the book of Galatians. So if somebody says to you, Paul is just talking about food laws um, and just talking about circumcision, saying as Christians you don't do those anymore, but you have to obey all the other laws to be saved. Can you see how this is is important at this point? What I would do is point them to chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul makes it clear to us that he's talking about the whole law. Uh, he's talking about obedience to God doesn't save us. Have a look at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 10 uh, and 11. The whole law is implicated. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, as it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. The book of the law is the, those five books of the Old Testament. Uh, nobody does everything written in the book of the law. So verse 11 says, Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous still live by faith. Can you see what he's saying? This law thing, it doesn't matter how much you obey it, you'll fail. (laughs) It's not just about circumcision and food laws. People who try and be right enough in God's sight by obeying the law will fail. There's a righteousness available by faith instead. Now, um, I'm going to get you to say something so have some audience participation today. There's a refrain that goes through the entire passage, and the refrain is, not by works of the law. And just because it's fun to be kids sometimes, every time we say it, I want you to say it with me. Because the point in chapter 2, verse 15, 8 to 18, is we are justified by faith, not by works of the law. Come on, make the kids hear you. We're justified by faith, not by works of the law. Okay, let's have a practice. Chapter 2, verse 15. Where who Jews by birth are not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He says the same thing over and over, three times. It's faith, not works. No amount of works can make you right in God's sight. Here's the first implication for how our changed relationship with God changes our relationships with each other. Every single person who is in right in God's sight has an equal status before him. 
There is no better and worse. If it was based on law and obeying the law, there would be better and worse because there would be people who obey it more than other people. If it was about circumcision and, and food laws, perhaps the people who do those things better would have a higher status. But we're all equally alike under sin and we're all equally righteous before God, justified by faith and not by works of the law. Oh, come on, we're not getting into that. The second thing he says, the next, uh, the next little bit, it sounds a little strange uh, to us. Participation in Christ means that righteousness comes by faith and not by works of the law. It's just a refrain that's going to keep going through the passage over and over again. Um, I think the way we think today, I, I, I'll talk about myself, the way I think today, I can understand the concept of God like announcing me as a judge that I'm clean in his sight, that I'm right in his sight because of Jesus. Um, this idea of participating in Jesus, being united to Jesus, is a bit foreign to me and my natural way of thinking. And so it's, it's very, very important. Uh, I'll read chapter 2, 19 to 21. If we're honest about it, I think you'll find that it doesn't really make, like, it, it, it doesn't grab you. The concepts are a bit harder. Um, chapter 2, verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Listen to this. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Jesus died in 33 AD. Chapter 2 verse 20 says that in 33 AD I died next to him because I'm trusting in Jesus. And you're going, that's weird. Like, what, what on earth that's, is that about? It's kind of hard to explain the mechanics of it. But basically, here's what it means. If you trust in Jesus, your relationship to him is so close that it's as if you died on the cross with him. The old sinful you died there. The break with your old life is so complete that you are not that person anymore. That isn't your identity. That person died at the cross with Jesus. Why is that important? Because if you're a Christian, then no aspect of your past defines who you are. Jesus defines who you are. That's extraordinary if you take it on board. Your personal history is not who you are anymore. That died on the cross. If you're united to Jesus by faith, then you participate, you share in his perfect status before God and you're called to live according to your own new identity and not the old one. And that has massive implications for how we relate to each other as well. True story. Um, there's a couple who are deciding to get married. The lady in question has a very dark past, a past that her uh, fiancé knows nothing about. Uh, she rightly decides if they're going to get married, she'd better tell him about it. And so she did. It was very hard for her to say. It was even harder for him to hear. When he fin- she finished, he walked out of the room. He came back into the room with a white bed sheet, wrapped it around her and said, I choose you to see you the way Jesus sees you. This is what it means to participate in Christ. I choose to see you the way Jesus sees you. Your old self died at the cross. I don't count that against you anymore. He's understood. If you're a Christian, there's no aspect of your past that defines who you are. No aspect of your past defines who you are. You're in Christ. That's your identity. Defines who you are utterly. 
you're united to him by faith and you share in Jesus' righteousness, that sinful past is dead to you. And Christian relationships are just about living like that's true. Just about living like that's true. That's why forgiving each other is so basic to Christian relationships. Our identity is in Jesus, and so our sins were crucified at the cross. So when you wrong someone, you can apologise to somebody without hesitation, without qualifying it, without saying but, but, but. Because what's at stake isn't your identity. You don't have to defend yourself because you have a new identity in Jesus. You don't have a reputation to defend. I know I sinned, and I am righteous in God's sight. And if a fellow believer wrongs you and asks for forgiveness, we can forgive them entirely because as Christians, we can't hold things against people that Jesus isn't holding against them. Knowing that we participate in the righteousness of Jesus changes everything about how we relate to each other, if we believe it. See people the way Jesus sees them, or the way God sees them in Jesus might be a better way of saying it. The next little section says, the Holy Spirit, see he's just saying, guys, don't you understand? It's not works of the law, okay? It's not works of the law. The Holy Spirit can be by faith in the gospel and not by works of the law. The Christian life begins in the same way, it continues in the same way it begins. You become a Christian by hearing the gospel and believing it. You keep being a Christian by believing the gospel, holding on to it and continuing to live out its implications. Have a look at chapter, chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 3. It says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? They're going for these works of the law stuff. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly betrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard, believing the gospel? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh, or another way of saying that, by obeying the law enough to be good enough before God. You see, when you become a Christian, what you understand is, I'm not good enough for God, but Jesus dies for my sins, and now I'm in the right with him because I'm trusting Jesus. And as you continue in the Christian life, you just keep doing exactly the same thing, continuing in the belief you first had. You don't turn aside to something else. You never graduate from the gospel to works of the law or any other sort of thing. You continue in Christ. Because as Paul says, the gospel is where the Holy Spirit's at work. When you believe the gospel, you receive the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live out our new life in Jesus. And the alternative of just going, I'm just going to obey the rules and try and work as hard as I can and not trust in Jesus for my status and not trust in Jesus to empower me to live his way, it doesn't work. Now you'll notice at our church, we spend a significant amount of time reading the Bible, having the Bible preached to us, calling people to continue trusting in Jesus, obeying what he says in the Bible. The reason is because salvation comes by hearing the gospel. Salvation is nourished, salvation, uh, uh, faith is strengthened by hearing the gospel. The Holy Spirit is at work through preaching the gospel. The gospel is at the centre of what we do. Something you might notice as you read the Bible is the word of God and the spirit of God are, are like this. They go together all the time. Most natural thing in the world for the Holy Spirit is to bring the word of God powerfully into people's lives. It's where God is at work by his spirit, his word and gospel. Think about how that affects how you think about talking to other people about Jesus. See, I've got a little picture of it. He's, um, he's a very scared person saying Jesus is, is 
crucified, risen, and he's the Lord, and you should trust him. And, 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 and you're doing it at work, and you feel really nervous because it, it, it's like the most mundane, scary activity in the world. It's actually not the most mundane activity. It's the most spiritually significant thing you could ever do. Because what's happening when you proclaim the gospel? Well, what has happened every time a Christian's been converted is that Jesus has, by the Holy Spirit, worked through that word to bring it into the life of a person and change them and bring them to Jesus, to trust in him. And as we come to church and continue to hear the word, the Spirit's at work to cause us to keep trusting Jesus and to grow in him. The word of the gospel is at the centre of what we do. And so we don't turn aside to something else. This is a big danger in churches, friends. Every year, there is a new book at Kurong saying, here is the latest thing that makes your church grow. Here is the latest thing you need to do that's the next step up that you're not doing at the moment. And, 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 and you know, people haven't done it for 2,000 years, but it's new and it's fabulous. And if you do it, your church will grow. And it's nonsense. <laughs> Christian maturity in Ephesians 4 is that we continue in Christ in what we've been taught. And we don't get knocked about like a ship on rough waves in the ocean. We continue gathering around God's word and seeing it change us over time. Now, the thing that shocked so many people in the first generation of Christians was that people who would never have anything to do with each other suddenly acted like they were one family because they were. Jew and Gentile came together and ate with each other. People of all peoples and races and tribes and enemies came together as one family because they all alike shared the same status before God through Jesus. They were all united to Jesus and they shared an identity with Jesus and therefore with each other. They are one people in Jesus and they found unity on the basis of Jesus. Here's what I want to ask you about that. What surprising friendships have you made on the basis of having Jesus in common with another person? What I mean is, knowing Jesus should cause us to have relationships, family relationships with people that we wouldn't have if Jesus wasn't part of the picture. Alternatively, in practice, if you restrict your Christian relationships to people you'd be friends with anyway without Jesus, then it's actually out of line with the gospel. The effect of the gospel is we're united with people we wouldn't otherwise be united with. Um, example, uh, men's Bible study, I, I, was, I, I went to lead at another church I was a part of a, a while back, and the, the guys there, um, they basically boasted, we've been meeting together, just this group of people, for 30 years. And I'm like, I know tons of other men have come through this church in that time. Did you invite them? <laughs> do, you, do you see, there's something about the gospel that causes us to reach out to each other and express the unity that Jesus has brought between us and to make surprising friends because we have Jesus in common. It's applied to our church. Um, we have life groups, Bible study groups, uh, uh, during weeknights. Great thing to be involved in. We'd love to put you on if you're not already. Um, you can expect in life groups, at times, to be uncomfortable <laughs> and to find some things relationally challenging. And the reason is because you'll be put with people who aren't just like you. And what you have in common with them is Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Gospel and the Word of God. And those things are a very solid foundation for a good relationship because we're united in Christ. The gospel creates new relationships with Jesus at the centre. Another point of application, thinking about how we relate to each other. Being busy, I know you're all busy, being busy means that making space for church community takes definite intention and purpose 
not just good intentions. Definite action and purpose, I should say, not just good intentions. Use the same word twice. Good intentions don't express church community, and when we're all busy, it falls off the radar. It takes purpose. It takes making plans. See, it's all good and well for me to say, your relationship with God in Jesus means you're united to each other. Go express it. Go, go, go do that. Um, to do that, though, you have to go, okay, what that will take is a spot in my diary. What that's going to take is a lot of spots in my diary. I need to regularly spend time with other believers so I can get to know them and develop Christian relationships. Good intentions won't cut it. So look at your diary. When was the last time you invited somebody uh, home from church, some, uh, another family, another couple, whatever, just to get to know them and express the unity you have in Jesus? Share a meal with them. Pick a Sunday in your diary and just do it. That's the way to express uh, Christian community, just inviting people around, getting to know Christians you don't know yet. Now, I started today telling you about Robert E. Lee taking communion besides a black man. Uh, we're having the Lord's Supper today. We're going to do it in a minute. Stuart will lead us in that. Um, the Lord's Supper, a lot of people have wrongly thought is just about expressing our relationship vertically with Jesus, with God through Jesus. Uh, you read the words that Jesus in 1 Corinthians, I assume Stuart will use these in a minute, um, and it sounds kind of like it's just about that. So it says, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Very, very significant thing, right? Make sure if you take the Lord's Supper that you discern the body, that you don't do so in an unworthy manner because it's a big deal. It's supposed to express something very important about our relationship to God, but it's also supposed to express something very important about our relationship to each other because what's this word body about? You read it and you go, okay, so I remember that Jesus died, his body was broken on the cross. Go home and read it in context. What's happening in 1 Corinthians 11 is that Paul is speaking to a church who are treating each other very badly. He says, The bread we break is a participation in the body of Christ, and we, fellow Christians, are one body. And just after this quote, Paul goes on to say, You want to take the Lord's Supper right? Stop mistreating each other. What does it mean to discern the body of Christ? It means not just to recognize that Jesus died for me, it's to recognize the person kneeling next to you, standing next to you, saying, This is my brother, this is my sister in Christ. I'm united to them through Jesus. It can't just be one-to-one individual time. So it matters a great deal what Robert E. Lee thought about the man kneeling next to him. That's his brother in Christ. That is a great deal what you think about the person next to you who's also a Christian. That's your brother, that's your sister in Christ. That's what Jesus has brought for us. Uh, let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we can know that we are justified by faith alone. Thank you that Jesus' death for our sins on our behalf means that our sins are gone forever and we're totally holy in your sight. Thank you that because we participate in Jesus, that our old sinful self is counted dead. There's not me living anymore, but I live Jesus' life. Christ lives in me. Please help us to understand in our experience what this looks like and to relate to each other like it's true. 
We want to thank you for the unity you've brought between all people, Jew and Gentile, to people who were once enemies, and the unity you've brought uh, between them. We want to pray that you would help us to express that as a church community, as we meet uh, week by week in big church, as we meet week by week in life groups, and as we just do life together, meeting all other times, getting to know each other and spurring one another along in our faith in Jesus. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.